right, first through sixth graders, you guys are dismissed for your classes. Let's give those kids a hand because we love them. All right, and I need you to open your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 1. I encourage you to grab a Bible if you don't have your own with you today. I encourage you to bring it next week. In the meantime, you can grab one of those blue Bibles from the rack in front of you. If you're using one of those from the rack, you'll find it on page 262, 1 Samuel chapter 1, as this morning we continue our Defining Moments message series. This is, a, I think, an important series for a lot of reasons, but one of the realities today is that many people don't have a, a basic understanding of the key stories in Scripture. And a series like this one, what it allows us to do is hit some of those highlights in the Old and New Testaments, some of those key stories uh, that are important to understand and grasp as we grow in our Christian faith. And so we've looked at the story of Queen Esther uh, in the book of Esther in the Old Testament. And then last week we looked at that important story of Adam and Eve, their defining moment literally shaped the course of human history. And even the Bible itself would not be the Bible as it is if it had not been for Adam and Eve's defining moment. And this morning we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and look at the defining moment of a wonderful mother by the name of Hannah. And so we'll look at Hannah and also the cast of characters that surrounds her in 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I think you'll discover uh, that when she got to her defining moment, she made some amazing decisions that helped shape the history of the nation of Israel. We're in, so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Say amen if you're there. We're going to start in verse 1. Here we go. There was a certain man from Ramatham, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Ziph, the Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Loving guy, but kind of dense. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now, Eli the priest was sitting on a chair. That just struck me for the first time. Oh, never mind. That was a tangent. He was sitting on a chair by the doorposts of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me 
and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk, and he said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking. Uh, I've been drinking the Zinfandel or the Heineken. I I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, well, go in peace. That's a nice way of saying, oops, misjudged her completely. Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way. She ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord, then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because... I asked the Lord for him. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband said to her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bowl, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now... I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. And the young boy worshipped the Lord there. May God bless us as we study his word today. Would you pray with me? Father, there's nothing that I can tell you right now that you don't already know. But Lord, I just want to say it anyway. I love this chapter. And I thank you for what you teach us in this chapter. Lord, would you minister to us over these next few moments with our cell phones silenced, with our minds focused on your word, and our hearts ready to receive what you want to plant in our hearts today. Lord, speak. Move in this place for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. If you agree with this prayer, all God's people said, Amen. Well, the events of 1 Samuel chapter 1 took place at a a pivotal time in Israel's history. It was just a few hundred years earlier that Moses had delivered over a million Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and he led them for 40 years through the Promised Land, and you probably remember what happened. When they got to the door of the Promised Land, God made it clear to Moses, you're not going to be the one to lead them in conquest of this land that God said was flowing with milk and honey. 
And so Moses died at the age of 120, and Joshua, his young uh, apprentice, became the new leader of Israel. And Joshua was the one that led them across the Jordan River in conquest of Jericho and the rest of the Promised Land. And so in the book of Joshua, we read the wonderful accounts, and it is a bit violent, but it is a wonderful account of God bringing that promised land of Palestine to his chosen people, Israel. And as we get past the days of Joshua, we find as we move to the next book of Judges that the Israelites' morals started to go down in a terrible downward spiral. For instance, in Judges chapter 20, excuse me, Judges chapter 2, verses 7 through 14, we read these words. It says, The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. But after the whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. And as we get to the final chapters of the book of Judges, we find this phrase repeated. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his his own eyes. In those days Israel had no king, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Long story short, during the period of the judges which led up to the book of 1 Samuel, the Israelites didn't care about following God's 613 laws that he had given to Moses there on Mount Sinai. The Israelites didn't care about the religious laws that God had given them. They didn't care about the moral laws that God had given them. They couldn't care less about doing what was right in God's eyes. They only cared about what was doing right in their own eyes. So as the book of 1 Samuel begins, there was a problem in Israel. And if you're taking notes on those handouts from your bulletin, this is your first blank to fill in. Here was the problem, a big problem. Israel was experiencing moral decay. Israel was experiencing moral decay. And there were at least two basic reasons why they were experiencing this moral decay. First of all, the Israelites had rejected God as their king. God flat out says this a few chapters later in 1 Kings 8 verse 7. God just flat out says, they have rejected me as their king. You see, God had created the nation of Israel and he created Israel to be a theocracy which is a fancy way of saying God is in charge, God is the ruler, God is their leader, God is their president, God is their king, God is their leader. And so the Israelites had rejected God as their king. In fact, right here in 1 Samuel 1 verse 3, it's really interesting that the writer of 1 Samuel begins to pave the way for a turning of the tide in Israel. They're experiencing this moral decline. And in chapter 1, verse 3, there's a beautiful little name of God mentioned that in English we would tend to gloss over it and not think anything of it. But I want you to look again at verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 Samuel. 
it says, year after year, this man, referring to Elkanah, he went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. You probably never noticed this before. I never would have noticed it either if someone hadn't pointed out what's used there in the original Hebrew language. But this name of God, Lord Almighty, you know something cool about that? This is the very first time in the Bible this name of God is given, Lord Almighty. This name, Lord Almighty, is used almost 300 times of God in Scripture, but it's not used a single time until 1 Samuel chapter 1. Well, what does Lord Almighty mean? Well, some of the older translations will take that word Almighty and just transliterate it, which means you take the Hebrew letters and just switch them with English letters, creating a brand new word. And it was the word Sabaoth. Sabaoth, maybe I've heard that before. If, If some of you love the old hymns, that word Sabaoth is used in one of the oldest hymns that churches ever sing, written by Martin Luther some 400, 500 years ago, whenever it was, Hundreds of years ago, he wrote that song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Remember the lyrics? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. But then later in the song, he says, Lord, Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. And so he's referring to this name, Lord Almighty. When we translate the word in our newer English translations that come up with a dynamic equivalent, it's usually translated as, Lord of hosts, sometimes Lord of armies. And let's link on to that word Lord of armies because that's a word we understand a little bit better than the word host. So this term Lord Almighty, Lord of armies, used for the very first time in Scripture right here in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 3. And we ask the question, why? Well, Lord of armies, we find out as it's used 300 times in Scripture, is usually referring to God as the Lord or commander of the angel armies. Sometimes it's used in reference to God as the Lord of all of the stars in the universe. Sometimes it's used of God in reference to being Lord or commander of the armies of Israel. And so why is it used for the first time here? It seems that God is beginning to pave the way here in 1 Samuel chapter 1 as he tells this story about Hannah, her husband, uh, uh, Elkanah, and their little boy Samuel, who was a, a promise from God and a miracle baby. And it seems like in this chapter what God is doing, even by the name that is used of him, is telling us we have this downward spiral of sin in Israel and God is going to begin to turn the tide. The nation of Israel said, we don't want you as our king, God. We don't want you as our leader, God. We don't want you as the commander of our troops, God. We want to do what's right in our own eyes. But then God begins to raise up a godly family that says, no, this has to stop. And God begins to raise up a family that is going to turn the tide in Israel to lead to a place where God once again is Lord and commander of the armies of Israel. Well, that's the first reason why Israel was in this downward spiral, because they had rejected God as king. The second reason they were in this downward spiral of sin was because Israel didn't have a godly leader to turn their hearts back to God. At the time that 1 Samuel 1 takes place, Eli is the high priest in Israel. And Eli was anything but a godly leader. He couldn't even lead his own two sons to faith in God, let alone the nation of Israel. And so God determined here early in chapter 1 
of 1 Samuel, that he was going to raise up a new leader, a different deliverer, and this one would be hand-chosen by God to do what Eli could not do, to faithfully lead the hearts of Israel back to God. So that was the problem. Israel was in a moral tailspin, and here was the solution that God chose. The solution, if you want to write this down on your handout, was a God-fearing family that would turn Israel's heart back to God. He was going to turn the tide through a God-fearing family. And there are three key members of this family that we're going to focus on in this chapter this morning. Now, we're not going to focus so much on Peninnah. Uh, She was the rival wife that liked to nitpick Hannah. Uh, She wasn't instrumental, I don't think, in helping to turn the tide. But the other three key members of the family talked about in this chapter were. So first of all, God chose a father who had a heart for worship. A father who had a heart for worship. We find here in this chapter that his name was Elkanah. In the first few verses of chapter 1, we're introduced to this man. He was a husband. He was a father who, according to verse 1, lived in Ramatham in the hill country of Ephraim. We learn in verse 2 that he had, count them, two wives. One named Hannah, the other named Peninnah. According to verse 5, Elkanah loved Hannah. But what does it say about his relationship with Peninnah? Nothing. It points out that he loved Hannah, so evidently we read between the lines and he didn't love Peninnah. Not a good thing. In all likelihood, Hannah was Elkanah's first wife, and so what oftentimes happened in those days, a man would marry a woman, oftentimes that he loved very much, wanted to spend the rest of his life with, wanted to raise a family with. But it seems like what most likely happened, he married Hannah, the love of his life, And after a year or two, they weren't able to have kids. And so Elkanah got a little impatient. He got a little impatient and said, Well, woman, i got to get myself a second wife because you're not bearing any children here. And so most likely what happened was because she wasn't having kids, she was barren. He married the second wife, Peninnah. Didn't even care about the lady. Just uh, seemed like whatever he did to determine if she was fertile or not, it seemed to be a good choice. And so he had Peninnah so he could have kids. Well, let me ask you, having two wives, a good idea or bad idea? Anyone for good idea? Some men are squirming in their seats. Very, very bad idea. Oftentimes when we talk about marriage in the church, someone will retort back, well, didn't God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? Why weren't they all these men, even some of the great men of the faith that had multiple wives? That's very true. God's plan in Genesis 1 and 2, he makes it very clear. His plan from the very beginning was for one man to be married to one woman for life. I shouldn't hold up the word two when we're talking about polygamy. Uh, One man married to one woman committed to each other for life. Well, how come God allowed polygamy? God allowed polygamy, but it was never part of his plan. And you like to point out those examples of polygamous relationships in the Old Testament. I dare you to point out one polygamous relationship that wasn't dysfunctional. So what about Abraham? Well, Abraham, he was married to to, to Sarah, right? And then they brought in the handmaid. That didn't work out too well, did it? How about Rachel and Leah? That didn't work out too well for good old Jacob, did it? 
Every time you find polygamous relationships, King David, King Solomon, you name it, every single time you have a dysfunctional family, it's almost as if God sat back and says, okay, go ahead and try polygamy. Let's see how this works out for you. And by New Testament times, we look back with the gift of hindsight and say, there's not a single example of it working out well. And Jesus comes onto the scene and says, see, I told you, let me take you back to the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2. This is how God created it to be. One man committed to one woman, married together before God for life. And so, with the gift of hindsight, we can see, okay, God had it right all along. Well, Elkanah had his two wives, and that was not a good idea. But let's try our best to put that aside for a moment and focus on what it was good and godly about Elkanah. Now, Elkanah lived in a day and time when most people could care less about following God's Word, right? Now, I know this may be hard to do, but I want you to try to imagine living in a culture that could care less about God's Word. Imagine living in a culture that couldn't care less about... Can you, can you stretch your mind just a little bit? Imagine living in a culture where there is sin all around you. Kind of hard to imagine, right? Imagine yourself living in a culture where people couldn't care less about God's laws. They couldn't care less about whether or not they're spewing profanity and four-letter words in front of three- and four-year-olds. Imagine living in a culture where everyone does what is right in their own eyes and they ignore God's laws and and do whatever they want to do because, hey, just do it. Can we imagine a culture like that? Absolutely. We live in it. So Elkanah lived in that kind of culture and despite the fact that Israel was experiencing this moral freefall, every single year without fail, Elkanah did what every Jewish husband and father was supposed to be doing. He led his family to the Lord's sanctuary in Shiloh to worship God and make a sacrifice for their sins. In Elkanah's day, doing this like clockwork was a bit countercultural. To many it must have seemed to be old-fashioned. But he did it anyways because he had a heart for worship. And as the leader of his home, he wanted his family to have a heart for worship too. 18th century Bible scholar Matthew Henry describes Elkanah this way. He writes, Elkanah kept his integrity. Whatever others did, his resolution was that he and his house should serve the Lord. I want to ask you men, Men, have you made a similar decision? Have you made a similar resolution? You know the reality as well as I do. Most men in America couldn't care less about being the spiritual leaders in their homes. Most men in America couldn't care less about going to church or reading God's Word or leading their families in prayer and devotions every day. Most men in America couldn't care less about doing what God has called them to do. But are you, like Elkanah, taking a stand in this sinful, downward spiral of sin culture that you live in? Are you taking a stand like Elkanah and says, you know what? Despite what all the other dads are doing, I'm going to lead my kids to Christ. Despite what all the other husbands are doing, I'm going to take my rightful place as the spiritual leader in my home and lead my wife and my kids to the Lord. Despite what everyone else is doing, 
I'm going to take a stand in this day and time, no matter how countercultural it is, no matter how old-fashioned it seems, no matter how many people might call me a prude or, or whatever, I'm going to take a stand and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Man, I hope you'll take that stand in this sinful culture we live in. Elkanah was the first key family member in that family that God would use to turn the tide in Israel. And the second key member, who's the greatest hero of this story, was a mother who had a heart for prayer. A mother who had a heart for prayer. Her name was Hannah. She's the greatest hero of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Her husband loved her, but according to verse 5, the Lord had closed her womb. Now, why on earth would the Lord do that? That big meanie in the sky. Why would he close her womb? Maybe it was because she had sinned big time. Man, she blew it. And God said, ha ha, I've been waiting to smite you, woman. I don't think that was it. Maybe her husband had sinned. Maybe another family member had sinned. I don't think that was it either. You know what came to mind as I was pondering that question this last week? What came to mind was what Jesus said to his disciples in the early verses of John chapter 9. You may remember the story. There's this man that they come across just begging. And they they come up to Jesus. Jesus' disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? It was so clear in their mind that this guy must have blown it. Or if he was born blind, God had fast forward into time and God said, okay, at the age of 17, he is going to really mess up. So because he's going to mess up in 17 years, I'm going to make sure he's born blind. This made sense in their minds somehow. Or maybe the parents sinned. They just really went off the deep end. And they sinned big time. So he was going to smite their child with blindness from birth. And they asked Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And you probably remember what Jesus said in response. He said in John 9, 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Does that verse not apply to Hannah or what? Why did God allow Hannah to be barren? Because God had in mind from the very beginning to do a great work in her life. And one of the beautiful things about this chapter is as the chapter unfolds, we get to see the hand of God being revealed in her life. He was working his plan for her good. For years, Hannah was barren. She couldn't have any kids. Her husband's second wife, Peninnah, didn't let Hannah forget that fact. You see that in verse 6. Peninnah was a mean, snarky woman. She was a pill. She knew that Hannah was deeply disappointed about not being able to have kids, and so Peninnah would tease her and make fun of her and push her buttons day after day, and this went on for years. And for whatever reason, her insults intensified when they would come to the house of the Lord. Now, I wonder if some of you couples have your biggest arguments on the way to church or on the way home after church on a Sunday morning. I've heard the stories over the years enough to know that sometimes whatever it is with that booger Satan, he tries to get us button heads with each other on a Sunday morning. Why is it on Sunday morning that the washing machine explodes? Why is it on Sunday morning that the hot water heater starts to leak? 
Why is it on Sunday morning that you get into your car and you turn it on and it goes, wah, 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 wah. why is it? I know, it's like God, he's warning us here that Satan likes to work his dirty work in marriages and in families. And in this particular family, Elkanah made a big blunder. He was impatient with God and married a second woman. And as that mistake had been made, as he sinned in that way, man, Satan was tempting Peninnah to push all of Hannah's buttons. And it drove Hannah up the wall. According to verse 9, one year Hannah decided that enough was enough. She was ready to go to battle, right? You see that in verse 9. Hannah's ready to go to battle. She's had enough of this criticism, enough of sitting on her hands and doing nothing. And so she takes matters into her own hands. And so she wants to go to battle. What does Hannah do? She picks up a baseball bat and hits her rival wife over the head with it, right? No, she doesn't do that. She gets all up in her husband's face and says, How dare you marry this second wife? Choose him out, right? No. What about the third option? She goes off to the side and chews God out. Has a few words with God. Tell him what's what. How dare you strike me with barrenness. You put me through all this shame and all this misery and all, all of this criticism. She doesn't do any of those things. What does Hannah do? One of the reasons she's a great hero of our faith is because of what we see her doing in verses 10 and 11. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, that's Lord of armies, O Lord Almighty, Lord of the angel armies, Lord of the universe, Lord of Israel's armies, I come to you. If you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. In other words, I will commit him to you as a Nazarite, a special set-apart Jew who would never cut his hair, who would never come near blood, who would never eat anything with blood in the meat, and carry out all of these strict guidelines, demonstrating for all to see that he had been dedicated to the Lord his entire life. And we find out at the end of the chapter, she had in mind to give him back to the Lord as soon as he would be weaned, which, catch this, in those days would have been around the age of three years old. Imagine moms taking your three-year-old and handing him over to the high priest, who once again wasn't that great of a guy, but handing him over to the high priest at the house of the Lord and saying, Lord, just as I promised, he is yours every day of his life. Wow. Notice that Hannah was humble when she prayed. She didn't yell at God. She didn't criticize God. She didn't uh, give him ultimatums. She simply prayed boldly. She prayed passionately she prayed with God's glory in mind and there's a beautiful little insight about a mother's prayers revealed in verse 10 look at these simple words again in verse 10 in bitterness of soul Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord I want to tell you moms miracles happen when a mom's tears mix with her prayers especially when those prayers are for her family especially when those tears are for her family. One of my favorite psalms that most people don't know about is Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. I love this little passage. Those who sow in tears 
will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. What a marvelous, marvelous passage. God makes it clear there in Psalm 126 that when you've got some seed of God's Word and you mix that with the tears and the prayers that come from a saint whose heart is being poured out over those prayers and over that seed, you will return with songs of joy. A godly mother's prayers are like seeds sown in heaven. And when a mom sows her prayer seeds in heaven and waters them with her tears for her husband or for her kids, I'm telling you, moms, miracles happen, don't they? And many of you could testify that when you humbled yourself before the Lord and prayed for your husband, and you covered those prayers with your tears, God worked a miracle, didn't He? How many of you moms could testify to the miracles God's worked through your prayers and tears for your family? Wives, I encourage you today, if your husband is not a believer, and I know some of you are here today in that boat, if your husband is not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, don't let up in your prayers for your husband. And as you pray for him, Water those prayers with your tears, believing that a miracle is going to happen. And moms, I encourage you today, if your kids are straying from the Lord, they don't have any interest in following Christ, they don't want to go to church, they don't want to read His Word, they don't have a heart for any of the things of God that you know they should have a heart for, moms, pray for your kids. And as you pray for them, water your prayers with your tears, believing that God is going to work a miracle in those kids of yours. I know some of you moms come to me on occasion and you're holding on to that hope that one day your kids who are 35 years old or 40 years old or 45 years old, one day they'll turn back to the Lord because you did what that proverb said that we read a few moments ago, train up a child in the way he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it. And you're wondering when your child is 35 and still not following the Lord or 45 and still not following the Lord, you're wondering, Lord, when? Moms, do not let up on your prayers. You keep praying. You keep crying over those kids of yours because I'm telling you, God works miracles through mom's tears and prayers. He did in Hannah's case. Look at verse 20. In the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Now catch this. That name Samuel means one of two things. Sometimes it's translated as heard of God. At other times it's translated as asked of God. Both apply in Samuel's case. Heard of God and asked of God. You see, Hannah had asked God for a son who she could give back to the Lord. And God heard her and answered her tear-soaked prayer. This great woman of prayer, Hannah, was the second key member of the godly family who helped turn the hearts of Israel back to God. Hannah is without a doubt the greatest hero in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And the third and final member of that godly family that God would use to turn the tide in Israel was this miracle baby who had a heart for obedience. He was a miracle baby who had a heart for obedience. His name was Samuel. He grew up to become a committed follower of God who created a bridge between the period of the judges and the period of the kings. When Samuel began his ministry, Israel had no king. They had already rejected God as their king, and they hadn't selected a human king yet. So when he began his ministry, they had no king. Catch this. When they selected their first king, which, remember, 
was one that people liked. Saul was head and shoulders taller than any other man around him. He looked like a king. He talked like a king. He seemed like a king. The people loved Saul. He didn't turn out so well, did he? Samuel was still ministering, though, at that time. So he begins his ministry. There's no king. And then with Saul, there was a man's king. And then the second king of Israel, remember, was King David, the man after God's own heart, anointed by Samuel, and he would become the greatest king in the history of Israel, and King David would pave the way for the coming of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, who would be not only the greatest king in Israel, but the greatest king this world has ever seen, because Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, would establish His throne. It would be an eternal throne. He would establish His kingdom. It would be an eternal kingdom. David would pave the way for Jesus Christ to come, who would be born in the line of David. And David was anointed as king because this little miracle baby Samuel came and was born of his mother who poured out her soul to the Lord in tear-soaked prayer. What an amazing chain of events. What an amazing chain of events that would not have taken place without a God-fearing mother who paved the way with her prayers. I just want to close by saying this. Moms, you do not know in the next generation or the generation after that or the third generation out who God has already pre-selected to change the course of history. And the setting of those events in place may very well be contingent upon your tear-soaked prayers for your kids or your husband today. There is power in a mother's prayers. There is power in a mother's following of the Lord Jesus Christ and her example in her family. Moms, if you're discouraged today, be encouraged. God is using you. He is hearing your prayers. Do not give up. Persevere. And God will bring rejoicing in the morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the wonderful blessing of moms. And I thank You as we look at this chapter, Lord, that You had this family working together. Peninnah was kind of a third wheel, Lord, but her criticism, in a sense, even nudged Hannah in the right direction to be the woman of prayer that You had called her to be. So I guess, Lord, we even thank You for Peninnah. But we especially thank you for Elkanah, the man, that husband, that father who had a heart for worship. We thank you for Hannah, a godly woman who had a heart for prayer. We thank you for Samuel, Lord, who had a heart for obedience and years later would go to King Saul, the first king of Israel, and he would say to him, God desires... Okay, are we back? Okay. If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ as Savior, we want to 